This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 9, Episode 51. This is Writing Excuses Q&A at the Writing Retreat. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we want to go eat. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. And I'm keeping us from dinner by talking <laughs> long-winded. No, it'll still only be 15 minutes. It'll just be them having to listen to. Anyway, questions. <laughs> First question is from Gamma. So in the, in the trend of uh, moral ambiguity, is there still a place for a story with a villain who is unquestionably evil and with the moral absolute there? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, what he's bringing up is that, particularly in fantasy recently, the trend has been for Shades of Grey, kind of kicked off by George R. R. Martin coming to prominence. Um, I would say I, I, I believe that there is. I believe that anything done well will be captivating. Uh, Harry Potter had an unquestionably evil villain who was really evil and interestingly evil. Um, and it worked. Yeah, and I can think of someone in real life that I would think of as unquestionably evil without naming any names, so I have no problems believing it in I'm fiction. I'm right here, Mary. <laughs> I, you know what, uh, in playing the, uh, the Borderlands 2 game, oh, the yeah. handsome, handsome Jack, Jack. so he evil. Thinks, he, he talks about himself like he's the hero of the story, but there's no doubt that it's yeah. And there's no doubt that he really kind of knows well, how yeah. evil he and, is. And I would point as well to, to you know something that is much more ambiguous than those, like uh, uh, Abercrombie's First mm -hmm. Law series, mm. in which the heroes are all various shades of dark gray, but the bad guys are pretty much just as evil as possible. Mm. So, yes. Next Plenty question. Okay, if you have a chance to publish a first book and it isn't representative of what you actually want to be writing, should you publish it? Um, well, you've written it, and are they offering you money? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I would still <laughs> publish it. The worst case uh, scenario of that is that you publish your second book under a different name. If someone is paying you, then yes. I, I do want to add the little caveat on this one, though. I'm glad I didn't publish my early books. But those who did publish their early books and they took off, I can think of several of them that are millionaires, like super big millionaires, and I don't think they mind too much. <laughs> um, so the worst case is that you have to publish under your name, and you probably won't have to do that. If someone wants to publish your book and give you money, yes should probably be the default, depending on the contract. I, I would say yes. Okay. Qualify it just a little bit. You wrote this because it was something you wanted to write, mm -hmm. but it's not what you want to be known for. But maybe what you want to be known for is I can write more than one thing. Yeah. Oh, look, I got a paycheck for this, and now I'm going to write something different and get a paycheck for that. And yeah, that's Tad Williams has a really good career writing a different type of genre every single novel. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to write an epic fantasy novel with only one POV? It's called Ooh. Name of the Wind. <laughs> um, yes. And it is hearty stew for the... <laughs> uh, yes, it is. Um, but you'll note that you still wind up with a giant cast. Yes. So that the epicness of it... And uh, you could make the argument that there are two POVs. Yes, you could. You could. There are a couple of POVs, really, with the frame story. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, Assassin's Apprentice, which we mentioned last week, 
is epic fantasy. Fate of the world is at stake. Um, large cast of characters, various interesting magics, uh, high fantasy, and it is one POV through nine books. And the thing is that you're you're building it differently. Yes. You you can't do it the same way as, as a multi POV book, but you can do it. You're gonna have to have a really engaging voice for that that character. Would be my suggestion to you on that one. That's gonna make it sink or swim. Of all of the myriad talents of the literary agents you work with, what was the one thing that made you decide to stick with them? Ooh, that's a good question. She really likes my work. <laughs> I mean, that sounds silly, yeah. but that is the core of our relationship, that I know, you know that she is as invested in my career as I am. And so as, as important as it is that she has great international contacts and that she knows how the taxes work and all these other really good things that she does, she is as invested in my career as I am because she loves my work. Yeah, that was for me with Jen as well, and that she was looking at the, the long-term arc of my career rather than just this book. A mm -hmm. couple things about Joshua uh, that really made me early on say, yes, I want to be with this person. First off, he gave a critique of my novel that Tor was offering to buy, where he identified the major structural flaw with the book that when I changed, improved the book dramatically. Uh, better, he he get, did a better job on that than most editors I've worked with. Um, secondly, he makes money for me, meaning he costs. Joshua costs a lot. Um, he, he costs fifteen percent of what I make, and we're doing pretty well. Uh, so he makes me more than he costs me. That's a really good sign. I still <laughs> yes. feel that he makes me more than he costs me. Um, even if you only look at the foreign sales, which I would not really be able to accomplish on my own, that recoups what he has cost me and then some by taking 50% of my U.S. And so um, there is that. And the last thing that really made me stuck with Joshua was when I had my first book and really was a nobody. I mean, my first the, the offer was for 5000 bucks on my first book, which is, you know, run-of-the-mill early advance, but it is, I mean, that means he's making, what, $700? off of all that work that he did, which is way less than an attorney would get for the same amount of time, he gave me, like, he didn't just give me the time of day. We had weekly phone calls. I felt like I was being treated like a superstar from day one with Joshua. I was wondering, when you're in the middle of um, outlining and researching for a novel or series, how do you, and you have limited time, how do you make sure that your writing skills don't atrophy, meaning that you only have a certain amount of time in the day and you're using it to research an outline. Do you keep a blog? Do you just do writing ex uh, exercises? That's a, this is a good question that I think is more applicable when you have to balance a regular job. So I, I, I want to really hear what Dan says about this one because... <laughs> well, um, you, you mentioned blogs. I, for years and years and years, ran a game review website and uh, did weekly editorials on that. I did game reviews. I did strategy articles. I was writing constantly, even though not as much of it was prose. Um, today, I don't do as much of that. I, in fact, I, my, I barely ever update my blog. Uh, what I have started finding myself doing now is, that was a really awkward sentence, wasn't it? Um, is working on, working on short fiction. 
you know, while I am researching the new book that I'm doing or the new multi-book series that I'm doing, I don't want the writing to slack off, and so I'm going to write a short piece about whatever. Yeah, and I'm going to give a slightly different answer, which is that I, I don't mind not writing for a while, um, but what I look at is ways to gear up again into writing mode when I am transitioning from, uh, you know, novel or outlining or puppet building back into that. And one of the things that I do is uh, that I will go on long walks or do some other physical activity in which I, I plan out the scene and think about it in my head. Uh, and then I will go ahead and write it. Um, I will also give myself time to free write where I'm not worrying about plot, but I'm just like, oh yeah, let me actually remember how to put string words together in a sentence. And so those are some things that I will do when I'm, I'm doing a transition period. See, I've never worried about this because if I take time off to outline or plot, it's never more than a couple of months. Even when I was yeah. a new writer, I was working the graveyard shift. I was working on my writing five to six hours a day. And so if you're working that much on your story, I mean, the, the, I could see writing skill atrophying if it's like you're going to have to take two years doing this because mm -hmm. you can only write a half hour a day, which is why I pointed down, but it's never even something I've even considered. Well, I should point out, I'm not concerned that my writing skills are going to disappear so much that if I don't write, I know I'm going to get grumpy. Yeah, and that's what happens to me, too. Yeah. Yeah. Howard? Ah, uh, you guys are fine. Okay. <laughs> What are some issues and concerns to be aware of when a short story writer begins writing a novel? Ha, that hmm. could be an entire podcast. Yes, it could. Um, do, I can do... Let's do a quick answer, and then we'll think about doing a, a full podcast on it. Uh, so when you transition from, from short to long form, um, the things that I find are different are uh, the amount of description, and, and one of the things we were also talking about in previous podcasts, the, the enfranchised versus disenfranchised reader. A novel reader and a short story reader come in with different expectations about the amount of exposition they're going to get. And this is one of the big areas that I see people failing to transition uh, when they're going from short to long form. Short story readers are used to having to fill in the gaps because there's not enough space. Novel readers are used to there being enough space for everything. So they assume that if the author does not put it in, it has been forgotten and missed and, and it's an accident. And so you actually wind up having to put more exposition in, uh, more um, that, that you have to make sure more of the details and fill out the picture more. I shouldn't say exposition, but you have to fill out the picture more. Uh, then there's also the number of characters and plot arcs that you're looking at. A lot of times, um, short stories you really only have space to do one or two plot arcs and novels depending on the genre that you're going on into they're expecting to see multiples and so sometimes it can be too simple yeah i think that's a great answer um if we cover this more i'd like to have eric james stone on the podcast mm -hmm. because he recently sold a book to bain um and that book was his he was primarily a short story writer and he had all of these issues mm -hmm. every one of them you just mentioned and had to work through them in creating his novel Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, all right, let's do our book of the week. Sarah Glassman is going to pitch a book to us. I would like to recommend Angel Maker by Nick Harkaway. It is incredibly read by Daniel Wyman on Audible. Joe Spork is a hapless London clockmaker who happens to be the son of a London-style gangster. His life is turned upside down when he meets the octogenarian super spy Edie Bannister, who releases a 1950s-style doomsday device. Wow. I want cool. to read that book now. Yeah. Your pitch is way better than our pitches, even on our own books. <laughs> she, she's a bookseller professional. Oh, she's okay. cheating. Yeah. Okay. See, we, we decided for this Q&A, and if we do future of these, we wanted to have one of the students pitch a book because, you know, we have done it a lot. And we're just going to have Sarah. showed us up. Yeah, I know. All of the books. How can they get this book? Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 30-day free trial membership with Audible and get i have now all i remember is angel Edie bannister uh angel maker uh free great that is a wonderful pitch i want to go listen to that book now. yeah me too all right so next question all right this is kind of targeted at brandon but i'd like to hear everyone's answer if possible um brandon at times you've mentioned uh free writing your characters that you need to scrap them and then other times you talked about adjusting and tweaking them and if you have tips on when you decide which way is the way to go Yes. Yeah, so what uh, what he is referencing is that I discover to write my characters more and more these days. It's the way that I come up with characters who are engaging and interesting um, and don't let the plot just kind of take over as much as I, I worry it can when I outline as much as I do. And because it is the thing I discover to write, it is the hardest thing for me to talk about uh, and to give tips on um, because it's very instinctive. Um, I look at what this character is doing I say, am I interested? Am I excited to write more about this character? Can I see myself writing a variety of different scenes with this character that are all engaging and interesting? Does this character writing this viewpoint challenge me? I often look at that these days. Does it force me to stretch in my knowledge, in my ability to write somebody very different from myself? Um, does it give me lots of great moments where in this scene I say, that is that character, that line encapsulates that character? And if I'm getting some of those moments, but not enough, that's a revision. That's a tweak. That's a, okay, I kind of have something here. There's something exciting about this, and I'm getting it, but they're not coming together yet. If I'm not getting enough of them, if I'm not excited about the character, often it's because the character feels too much like someone I've done before or someone I've read before. Um, that's when I toss the character and start over. I've got a folder full of, the, the folder is called Off Track, and it is full of schlock mercenary scripts that I was writing as the next point in the story, and usually what is happening in those is somebody else has walked on screen, and I find myself exploring that character's voice, and by the end of the script, I just cannot make that character work with this script, but I don't want to throw it away, and so I chuck it in a folder and write something else, and I've ducked back into that folder and found that in many cases, what's in there is backstory for completely different characters who developed those voices. Uh, but yeah, I, it's the same sort of thing. I'm, I'm discovery writing my way into somebody's voice, and if I don't like it, I allow myself to not use it, 
but I still keep it because throwing things away is bad. Yeah. If if you are putting together a character, you're you're designing your characters for your story, and you realize that one is not working, you can look at it and just ask yourself: Is it more work to fix this, or is it easier <laughs> to tear it down and start over? You know, which one is going to be easier for you to do? Yeah, You're exposing I, our inherent laziness, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think of it in terms of, of my theater background again, um, which is that I think of it as recasting the character. Sometimes I'll have, a, I'll be partway in, um, or in the case of a more recent thing, I will have the entire book finished and realize that the, uh, the character, that I, I essentially have the wrong actor playing the character. All of the, the plot spots are correct. But the uh, the inner life of the character is completely wrong, and so I will do a rewrite where I will replace the character with different motivation. And for me, it's it is thinking about the motivation of the character, why what what it is they want, and also what their background is. So because their background and their history informs how they react to things, and a lot of times those are the places that I've gone wrong because the reactions do not jibe with what I need to have happening so I give them a different backstory all right we're gonna let it go one more question because you've been waiting so patiently um, when you build a story um, do you find it easier to put the foreshadowing elements in as plot points or back on the first editing pass I'd say I both. do about half and half yeah both. yeah um, part, part of that part of the reason that that works for me is because of how I outline things so I know that I'm building towards you know these few specific moments and so as i'm writing an opportunity will arise to go oh this is great um and i can't give you the example that just popped into my head because it's for the book that's not published yet sorry um but then about the other half of the time you get to the end and you realize oh well, there's not enough yet i need to go back and add more yeah and I sometimes things that look like foreshadowing are really us re looking back at the beginning and going what can I use that I've mm. already planted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, the the running gag is a very common very common sort of structure, um, and far better than the running gag is the joke at the end of the story that absolutely wouldn't have worked if you hadn't told three or four jokes that led up to it. It's the same exact principle as the foreshadowing. About half the time. I know what the final joke is, and I will write the jokes that lead up to it. And the other half of the time, um, we are, uh, I, sorry, I am uh, writing jokes, and I have no <laughs> idea what the last joke is. Or but what after you're I've going told, to say. I've, yeah. Well, after I've told the first three, there's hand signals flying across the room <laughs> that our listeners have no idea are flying across the room. I will have told three or four jokes, and then the last one comes to me, and I realize, oh, well, maybe my subconscious was foreshadowing that one, and that's where I get to end up. All right. I want to ask a student to give us a writing prompt. Oh, oh you didn't warn them. Burn. I know I didn't. Has anybody got a writing prompt for us? Uh, the favorite one I have is um, everywhere Edward looked, everything was covered with ketchup. <laughs> That's your first line. Nice. You're out of excuses. Now go right. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. 
Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.